You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation, and I'm happy to be joined today by Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference. Hugh, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. And a pleasure to be with you, Britta, and thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Today, we are talking about hackers and threats, and specifically with an eye towards the challenges of cyber attacks on governments and national infrastructure. We have two just incredible guests with us today to share their perspectives and experiences. And Jason and Dimitri, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Jay, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, Sure thing. I'm uh, Jay Healy. I'm a senior research scholar here at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. So I came up as a practitioner, um, especially on the the intel and threat side in response. Um, But for the last couple of years, I've been been writing and teaching, especially for on international affairs. All right. Terrific. I will ask the same of you. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, so, Dimitri Alperovich here, uh, co-founder and chief technology officer of CrowdStrike, also uh, an advisory board member at the RSA conference with you, Hugh, and um, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council along with Jay. Super. So, thank you both again for being here with us. I actually want to Start with hearkening back to the session that the two of you facilitated at our RSA conference last month, because I think it really sets up nicely the overall arc of the conversation we're going to have today. Um, and for our listeners, we're adding the link so you can go, you can watch that. Highly recommend taking a look at it, because you executed a cyber war game that featured a top-notch panel of individuals who participated in the U.S. National Council, which helps our audience really to understand and observe real-time how government leaders weigh the options in a national-level crisis response. Um, Jay, I'm going to direct this first question to you because you were the author of that attack and the index that the panel was taken through, which really resulted in a very illuminating exchange of ideas between those folks. Talk us through some of the key takeaways from that session. Um, And again, listeners, I do encourage you to take a look at that because it does show well the nuances of what happens at a national level when an attack is detected. Uh, Yeah, without a doubt. Thanks very much. And and Dimitri's fingerprints were were probably more over that than mine, but this is is certainly the space that that I've been owning on the national response from my time back at, at White House and Department of Defense. And so it was fascinating to see. So we had uh, very senior people that um, representing the Department of Defense, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, and the Department of Homeland Security, and they're all trying to give the RSA attendees a sense of what happens in the situation room, that if we're getting ready to go to the president, um, uh, what happens? And and I really like these because uh, it's the, the third or fourth one we've done for RSA, most of us know incident response only from inside our own enterprises, right? You know, we're, we're talking about forensics and we're looking at artifacts and maybe, you know, we're thinking about how does this impact the business and, and maybe we're thinking about things like ISAC. And it's a fundamentally very different thing that happens in the White House when they're saying not just, 
how do we defend our enterprise against the, this attack and try and figure out who's behind it, but how do we bring together this cybersecurity knowledge with this knowledge of law enforcement and homeland security and the military and, and develop options for the president? And so these RSA war games have been really fun to explore a little bit about each of those sides. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that we really wanted to highlight to the audience, as they said, this is uh, uh, the fourth time we're doing one at our state, is what a huge impact uh, national security decision-making, foreign policy have on these cyber incidents that so often you have these people that come to our state conference, they're thinking about technical issues, how to improve security, how to better design authentication systems, all those things that are critical aspects of cybersecurity, but we wanted to elevate the discussion to the national security level to show them that when you have these attacks, which are occurring at greater and greater frequency, um, there are national consequences, destructive attacks like NotPetya, um, obviously uh, mm-hmm. influence operations we have seen over the last couple of years from various nation states, those things trigger fascinating discussions and debates at the highest levels of U.S. government, um, along with our allies. And we wanted to kind of lift the, the curtain on those discussions, mm-hmm. show people the decisions that are being made by people um, that have been in those positions over the years. And, uh, uh, you know, we're continuously trying to improve those exercises and make them more relevant. In the past, we've involved lots of people and lots of teams. Uh, this year, we wanted to have one panel with representatives from Justice Department, DOD, um, and uh, DHS responding to a specific scenario. But uh, one of the things that um, uh, I think always comes through in these scenarios is how quickly it becomes not just a cyber incident, uh, but actually a major foreign policy challenge. And one of the things that was really interesting to see, particularly in this last exercise, was how a cyber attack from Iran um, that caused some casualties in a late, a late subway system uh, resulted in kinetic retaliation where the, the DOD, uh, Eric Rosenbach, who was the chief of staff to Ash Carter um, uh, in the last administration uh, and was playing the role of the Secretary of Defense on, the, on our panel, said, you know, we're going in with strikes. We're, we're launching uh, cruise missiles. We're, we're, we're uh, setting up air, air packages for taking out air defense systems in Iran, uh, which is really sobering to think about that a cyber attack um, even one that causes casualties uh, can, um, uh, you know, essentially result in, in, in a hot conflict. Yeah, and, and if I can pick up on a, you know, one of the big differences that, to pick up on Dimitri's point is, uh, actually, I'll, I'll even kind of use the, the CrowdStrike tagline, right? Once you start getting a cybersecurity problem that is bad enough, you don't have a cybersecurity problem. You have an adversary problem. So in the RSA event, right, at some point, it wasn't just that Iran was conducting cyber attacks that were, that were affecting Americans, but Iran was also reneging and pulling out of the, the nuclear deal. And so, you know, once you're at this point of, you know, Eric was the, the, the chief of staff of the Department of Defense. Um, uh, Suzanne Spaulding was the undersecretary of, of DHS, right? They're looking at what's, the, what's our overall issues with this country, country going to be and how do we fold our cybersecurity response into the rest of our diplomatic, military, and law enforcement response. Well, and let me ask both of you, if you look at the kind of precipitating incidents that are happening in cyber that then lead to those discussions of, hey, do we 
send in the physical troops or do we launch a, launch a strike? How do you think that looks today, and how do you think it may change in the future? Like, Dimitri, you mentioned influence operations. Obviously, that's something that's been in the news a lot recently, and uh, and you were very involved in exposing some of that. And if you look at some of the things like the big ransomware attacks, what are we likely to see in the future as the precipitating cyber incident that then leads you into that situation room? That's a great question, Hugh, and Jay may disagree with me here, but I actually think that we've come a long way, certainly in the U.S. government, in terms of thinking about these issues and developing better policy frameworks. So Jay, I'm sure, remembers um, not that long ago when we had these debates in U.S. government tying themselves up a knot of whether we can only respond to a cyber attack in cyber. And we've come to a realization that, no, cyber is just a means to an end. And if someone is taking out our electric grid through a cyber attack, we can respond proportionally, but we don't have to limit ourselves to cyber. We can actually use all toolkits of our power, including kinetic, um, to, to achieve the result that we want. So I think on a lot of these issues, and, and this is why we're seeing kind of traditional foreign policy leaders getting more and more into the space because they're realizing that, the details of the attack don't matter as much as the effect. So just like we don't expect our national security leaders to understand the intricacies of how the cruise missile guidance system works in order to determine that the impact of that cruise missile uh, is, is really uh, damaging to our national security and we should retaliate proportionally, the same thing is now happening in cyber where, yes, perhaps we don't have our, our leaders as educated on the details, the technical details of cyber attacks, but they're certainly starting to appreciate the impact and the range of options that they have to respond to them, which are not necessarily uh, or almost never actually cyber responses. Yeah, although the, this administration, the Trump administration, is really starting to look at what they can do to um, look at these precipitating events and, and try and prevent it from going that far. Um, you know, over a lot of conversations over the over the uh, previous years, you know, Dimitri and I have had a lot of conversations about this, and, and it's one of the few points where we really have, um, you know, a lot of back and forth, and, and I would say disagreement. Um, I think we both agree that this administration is rightfully going to be doing more leaning in on these events, of saying, all right, we've got to be pushing back a little bit in these areas. Um, the Cyber Command just uh, released a vision, which they called uh, around persistent engagement, of saying, look, in, in cyber conflict, it's not peace or war. Um, it's this persistent, constant back and forth between adversaries, and therefore, we need to defend forward and with more agility. Now, in practical terms, that means going back to the White House and getting revisions to a document called PP, PPD-20. Um which is the Obama administration's, if we are going to go back and use military cyber power against someone, what are the rules you have to follow? And for anything that's particularly muscular, it, it, ha it needed presidential approval. And so to, to implement this forward defense and agility, uh, looks like Cyber Command is going to be asking for looser rules under PPD-20 um, so that they can, for example, if they are seeing infrastructure that's being used by um, 
one of the panda groups or, or the Russian bear groups that, that uh, CrowdStrike tracks, that Cyber Command would have easier time to go in and disrupt that infrastructure before the attack became severe. Um, it's, it's almost certainly going to be happening within the next six months, I would say, that we'll see these changes. And, um, and we'll have to see if that um, tamps down the competition um, or, if, or if it makes you know, China and Russia and others say, oh, yeah, and then they decide to, to um, uh, be more aggressive on their side. And, you know, the, the, the other big change that I've seen that I've actually been very pleased with, um, and it's a trend that started in the last couple of years but certainly accelerated under the Trump administration, is the willingness to do public attribution. I remember the right. years yeah. when I was sort of in the wilderness back in 2010, 2011 timeframe at the time, talking about China, talking about North Korea and other countries, and you couldn't find a government official that would come out publicly and say the word cyber yeah. and let's say China in the same sentence. In, in, in fact, they were trying to shy away from that. They have these mm -hmm. ideas that if they would only admit that China is hacking corporations, that uh, you know somehow they would burn all their sensitive sources and methods. And uh, you know, initially with indictments that the Justice Department had put out against the PLA officers, and later other attribution they had done in the case of Sony with North Korea, and then ultimately Russia and, and the election. Um, they they realize that no, you can actually come out and say who's responsible and not lose any face and not lose any credibility, and certainly not burning the source of methods. And I was very pleased that the Trump administration accelerated that trend with the WannaCry attribution, with the Petty attribution, and that they're um, starting to do these more frequently and much faster. Still a ways to go, and but I think that's a critical component of this. Yeah, it was really it, it was a really important change. Um, and not just doing faster attribution, but doing it with international partners, especially when they were affected by the same incident, like, exactly. like Russians with NotPetya and, and North Korea with WannaCry. Real, really important change, um, especially if they are then tying it to policy responses, right? Not just calling them out, um, which I think is useful on its own, but also tying it to, um, uh, to, to some kind of punishment or, or other policy responses. But the other reason this is critically important is that you still have a lot, a lot of people, including many people that are in our industry attending the RSA conference, that still think that attribution is something that can't be done because unless you can trace back through every hot point and every machine and proxy that is being used directly to the machine of the attacker, there's absolutely no way you can attribute. And, of course, that's not how attribution is actually done. And uh, these folks need to realize that there's lots of sources and methods that the government has, whether it's intercepting phone calls between people talking about planning these attacks, whether it's having human sources that are giving them information, or leveraging other uh, cyber forensics means to get to pretty accurate attribution that um, uh, is not done by tracking back uh, through, through the machines that, that are being actually used in attacks. The analogy I often use in this is it's like saying that you can never find a bank robber unless the, you can track the uh, tire tracks from the getaway car back to their house. And, of course, that's not how we find back bank robbers in the real world. We use all kinds of forensic evidence and DNA and fingerprints and everything else to determine who might be responsible for this and find them. That's exactly how these, these things work in cyber as well. And I think that's really important mm -hmm. for people to understand. Yeah, Dimitri, I think that's a great point. You know, I think this, this topic of attribution, which has come up, 
uh, a lot and is becoming so important now, especially as it's a trigger to potentially kinetic things. How do you think we've changed the thinking about the sources and methods? Like, you know, I think about the the purely technical approach where we get our hands on a binary, we can take the binary apart, you know, Ida Pro and a denial of weekend attack, and you can pull every string out of it. You can pull pull uh, even tells of the individual that maybe wrote it. You can maybe trace back which country it got delivered from down to a specific server even. But when we get to the what is the intent of the group, and were they under the influence or commanded by a nation state? Is it? It seems like the technical piece perhaps is in the domain of the security industry. Of course, the government has some amazing resources there too. But then those other tactics that you're talking about, the human intelligence, the people on the ground, the folks that they actually have inside of that country, are you seeing the collaboration happen with the technical folks as well as the intelligence agencies that maybe could put two and two together to give, say, the White House really definitive views on, yes, it was the will of this nation to conduct a cyber attack? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's ha- been happening all along, going back to, to the 90s when they were tracking things that Jay's been involved in, like Moonlight Maze and, and uh, many of the other early attacks. So when the U.S. government does attribution, they certainly bring to bear all the powers of the U.S. intelligence community, whether it's CIA, NSA, FBI, and other agencies that may have relevant information. So that's always been the case. They're not necessarily going to publish it. They're not going to tell you this is the agent that we have inside of the PLA that gave us this information because obviously that would get that person killed and no one has any interest in in, um, burning sources and methods like that. Uh, But when you see the U.S. government coming out with a statement that they have, quote-unquote, high confidence in particular activity, that means that they're very certain. That is as high as they can go in an intelligence assessment by telling you that there's multiple sources, they're vetted, they've provided good information before, it's probably based on technical means and human means um, to attribute uh, an attack like this. So that's always important, and particularly when you're trying to get to that higher level of attribution that you talked about, Hugh, where it's not just we know that it's this particular unit within the People's Liberation Army of China that's responsible, but you're trying to ascertain, well, is this something that is um, uh, ordered by the leadership of the country? Is this a rogue unit or rogue, rogue general that is acting on their own? Right. Some of those things become really important for policymakers to decide how to respond to that attack. So just knowing that it was a particular unit is not as helpful as knowing uh, whether it was a strategic initiative on the on the part of the leadership of the country. Great. Yeah, no, it's 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 good to see uh, good to see how that's that's evolved, and I've I've noticed that same cooperation. Uh, Britta, sorry, just sorry to interrupt you. No, sorry. So I, I wanted to Jay, you've done some really interesting work with the New York Cyber Task Force. And I know you've recently re- released some um, some documents, some some recommendations, and I believe 
um, that this is probably going to be informing some of the work that the White House and DHS are looking at. And, and recalling that at RSA conference on Tuesday, DHS Secretary Nielsen in her keynote address, uh, she had, she indicated that the cyber strategy for the DHS was in fact being updated. What do you expect to see in those, in those updates? Do you believe that the work you've done with the New York Cyber Task Force is informing that? And, and then, you know, for our listeners at large, how perhaps can guidance that you're giving from a, you know, at a governmental level, how do we apply that to the challenges we're facing within enterprises? So it's a, it's a big, uh, long, convoluted question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and so Demetria was one of the members of the New York Cyber Task Force along with CISOs that many of your listeners would know, like, Phil Venable, Greg Rashway, Ed Amoroso, um, uh, and many others. Uh, and we really looked at how we, how defenders can get leverage. That is the most advantage for defenders over attackers at the greatest scale and least cost. So we looked at what innovations over the last 50 years have helped give us leverage, you know, across technology, operations, and policy, across the enterprise and, I'm sorry, within the enterprise and across cyberspace as a whole. So most of us are familiar with intrusion detection systems, passwords, firewalls. That's technology inside the enterprise. We actually get more leverage from things like Windows Update or end-to-end encryption, where um, you know, it wasn't necessarily cheap for Windows to do um, Windows Update or Apple to do end-to-end encryption, but you have one solution that helps a billion rather than having to, to um, do the same thing, you know, deploy the same widget a billion times. So we had this idea of leverage. Um, and that we've really been uh, very impressed with the take-up that we've had in the government. Uh, you know, I've been writing and, and putting out policy papers and the like for seven years now, and I've never seen uptake like we did off the New York Cyber Task Force. So DHS is telling us that the concept of leverage, um, they're folding into, into their cyber strategy, that, that it appears throughout there, um, within the Trump's executive order, uh, 13800. You see a lot of our ideas that are in there. Um, you know, we really, uh, the members of the task force really pushed cloud uh, as a way that, um, not, it's not risk-free, but the risks that you're getting with cloud are a lot more manageable than those you're giving up. And you see them talking about shared services in the document, ideas like um, trying to drastically reduce botnets are in there. Um, and so is the, uh, this administration is getting ready for the next, says the DHS cyber strategy and also the national cyber strategy. Um, you really, uh, we really are um, expecting to see a lot of this concept of leverage in there. And, you know, the other thing we looked at, um, obviously, how to scale defenses and, and get leverage, but the other thing that was really important as well is to look at the cost-benefit analysis from the adversary's perspective, where um, one of the things yep. that uh, we don't see a lot these days in cybersecurity is people thinking through that if we're going to spend X amount of dollars, time, effort, resources, what is the impact of the adversary? Is it going to be, uh, you know, 10% of the effort uh, on their behalf to overcome the defenses you just put in place, in which case you're actually not getting any leverage and um, you're escalating an arms race that uh, you're not going to win because you're going to, uh, um, they're, um, they're going to spend a lot less than you will. So thinking about those types of things that actually give us a greater bang for our buck um, versus what an adversary would do to try to overwhelm those defenses becomes really, really important and something that in traditional military thinking you're always applying and in cybersecurity we just haven't been doing as much of. Let me, let 
me ask you both a, a final question here. I think this has been a great discussion about about government and policy and how they think about these issues. You know, more and more, as, as both of you know, the boardroom has uh, had to wrestle with these things very, very mm-hmm. directly. And uh, without the benefit of having security advisors and security folks that are intimately integrated into those boards historically. How do you, what do you recommend to our listeners on how to get their board cyber savvy? Or is it good to get their board cyber savvy? How how do you communicate this kind of stuff that we're talking about here to the board? So we'd we'd love to get both of your views on that. Yeah, Hugh, this is a key question. I'm very glad you asked that because um, I'm seeing this all the time in my day job as I do a lot of board presentations and engage with um, chairmen of the board. I just recently did an event with Tom Pritzker, executive chairman of Hyatt, where we talked about this very thing. And um, the, the good thing here is that most boards are becoming very, very concerned about the topic of cybersecurity. They all read the news. They all see things like Equifax and OPM and all the breaches that yep. we read about all, all day long. What they're struggling with is how to um, take that information, take that concern, and actually make a difference in their organization. And the problem that they have is that the CISOs that are coming in to brief the boards, when they do come in to brief the boards, which is usually no more frequent than once a year, what they do is they provide a laundry list of projects that they're working on. You know, we're going to implement better encryption here, we're going to implement better patch policy, whatever it is. And of course, most board members are not technical, nor do I believe they sh- should they be. Um, so their eyes just glaze over when they see that, and they have no idea how to evaluate that. Is that enough? Is that too much, frankly? Um, uh, what are we getting for all those investments and money and time and resources that we're spending? And they have no way to answer that. And I believe that fundamentally the problem comes down to the lack of outcome-driven metrics. So mm-hmm. when you have the, the sales leader of an organization coming into the board meeting, it is pretty clear on whether they accomplished their goals or not last quarter, right? Did they make the numbers or did they not make the numbers? And, yes, there's a laundry list of projects that they can talk about, about what they're going to do to improve uh, next quarter and the quarter after. But, fundamentally, they're being evaluated every quarter based on whether they met their numbers or not. And similarly, in other departments within an organization, did you ship the product, did you not ship the product, and so forth. And that doesn't exist in cyber. And one of the things that I've been pushing boards to adopt, which Hyatt has and, and many others uh, have now done, is three very simple metrics. It is what is your time to detection of an incident, what is your time to investigation of an incident, and what is your time to ejection of the adversary or to mediation. And the best organizations strive to do one minute to detect on average, ten minutes to investigate, one hour to respond. And the reason um, that, that, that those times are important is that what we found out at CrowdStrike is the so-called breakout time, the time that it takes for an adversary to actually break out of a compromised system that they've managed to get a hold of by surfacing someone or having someone click on a link that compromises their machine, to break out of that beachhead and start spreading across the network and actually cause a breach is on average actually two hours. So if you contain them and eject them, um, at that, uh, from that beachhead within um, that two-hour window, and in fact do it sooner, you actually prevent the breach. You prevent them from spreading across your organization, getting to the resources they really care about, 
doing damage to, to the network um, or exfiltrating data. So that speed of response becomes very important, and everyone gets it. You don't have to be technical resource to get time to detect, time to investigate, time to remediate. And it's very easy to track for every incident that you have. It's very easy to test yourself against this by having a pen test come in once a quarter uh, every six months and evaluate how quickly you, you detect them, investigate, and, and remediate. So it becomes a great metric, a great set of metrics, avoids to track other investments actually paying out and start to, to holding their CISOs accountable for improving uh, their ability and speed of response. Yeah, I can't lose, Jay. The, um, I absolutely agree with that. But because I'm spending more of my time thinking about national policy, right, so I completely agree with Dimitri with inside the enterprise. So for me on the policy side, I say, well, what is it that I can do where we can get the most of that happening within um, within enterprises um, by act, you know, with the, with the least amount of leverage? So my brain tends to go with, well, board directors are there, to represent the interests of the shareholders, of the investors in, in the company. And so I like when I say, well, what is it that we can do to get the board directors to pay attention? I don't want to work within the company, even though that's that's a perfectly good way to do it. I think about what external leverage can we have? Can we have leverage directly with the, with the, with the investors and shareholders? Um, before Y2K, you had CalPERS, the California, pension system, California State Pension System, went to all of their companies and said, what are you doing to get ready for Y2K? Um, and so I, you know, I think, boy, what might happen if we could go to the activist investors, show them places like Yahoo and others that have been losing value, and we don't have enough of those examples yet, sure, clearly, um, but saying hey, we have more than we did for Y2K, and saying, look, you might be, you might, your board might not be covering this well enough. You need to get in, involved to make sure that these companies don't suffer a Yahoo, don't um, uh, kind, of, kind of hack and lose value for you. Um, same with someone like Warren Buffett, right? If we could get Warren Buffett to say, I'm going to use the NIST cybersecurity framework, I'm going to use it in all my companies, I will only invest in companies where I know the intellectual property hasn't walked out the door, all of a sudden you're going to be getting a lot of board directors around the world are going to be seeing this pop up in the in the FT and, and um, um, in the business newspapers, and they're going to sit up and say, "Boy, if, if Warren's doing this, then I better I better learn something about it too." Jay, how do you feel about GDPR and sort of the implications of that law that's coming into effect just in a couple of weeks here, at, and potentially from a damages perspective, you could have four percent of global revenue um, that is held. Uh, by European Commission um, if you fail to adequately respond and report uh, the breach. Is that something? Yeah, I mean, without, without a doubt, right? I mean, I think it's, you're right, that can be a, a fabulous driver. Um, but will GDPR overall be a boon for security? Uh, you know, by aiming at privacy, is it going to help security do that mechanism? Um, or is it going to hurt security because it's focused primarily on privacy and that's going to mean that we you know, we as security responders and intelligence, you know, threat intelligence folks can't share quite as easily as we used to. Uh, and I can see I can see that coming out. Fully agree. Great. 
Well, you two have been awesome. Um, I appreciate everything you've done over the years for the RSA conference community. Uh, as you mentioned, this is yeah, year four of that great war game, and I, I really do think the insights gained there not only are helpful to seeing how policy develops, how governments respond, but also the bridge that you've made in this conversation to how enterprises can equally respond to some of the same things. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dimitri and Jay, and for our listeners, um, please join us for next month's podcast as well.